This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm. You're listening to Panel Borders on Resonance 104.4 FM and DAB in London. I'm Alex Fitch, and this is Resonance's monthly show about comics, graphic novels, and sequential art. In a belated Halloween special, I'm talking to three creators who work in very different styles on horror-themed comics. Later in the show, I'll be talking to legendary manga creator Toshio Maeda about his grotesque erotic comics such as Orosoki Doji, Legend of the Overfiend. Later, I'm talking to John Ken Mortensen about his collection of nightmarish sketches on post-it notes which were collected in the UK as Sticky Monsters. However, to start off with, I'm talking to Coco Kirkland about his cartoon-inspired graphic novel Project Immortality, which sees a recently deceased character come back from the dead as both a zombie and a ghost, and together they must solve the mystery of his death. My Q&A with Coco was recorded at Cartoon County, which used to take place every month before the various lockdowns at a pub in Brighton, so you'll have to forgive the background noise. You're 16. Yeah. And you've written and drawn a 250-page graphic novel. That's not something that a lot of teenagers do. When you started this project, had you done various short comics that you'd shown kind of friends and peers before launching on this? as much as you'd think. I just kind of went straight into doing the long one. But I've, I've been drawing ever since I was very young, ever since I was a kid. I've been communicating using pictures so this is why I think comics are the art form for me Mm. Mm -hmm. and the plot which is about um, the main character Chris wakes up dead as you do to find that he's been split into a ghost and a zombie and the two halves can communicate but ordinary people can't see the ghost version and he's going on a quest to find out who killed him what this mysterious project immortality might be that may have led to this kind of bifurcated zombie ghost version of himself where did the idea for this story come from it, it was really sudden if i most of my ideas come to me just like just like that and i don't know i, I, I just thought it was funny and I, I i was in the pub with my dad and i probably would have completely forgotten about the idea if he hadn't been sitting with me and i, I told him it and he thought that it was a good idea so i remembered it and then I wanted to make a graphic novel, so I decided mm. to incorporate this idea. And I don't know. I feel like it's a silly idea on the surface, but it really explores a lot about how people are, if that makes sense, because mm. we have this whole dynamic with the, the mind and the body. Yeah. And doing a book of this length, did you write it all out first as a script, or were you kind of drawing and writing as you went along? Uh, my, my process with my... Because I've made a few more comics, right? Mm. Now, but my process with my comics is normally uh, ideas brainstorming just in a notebook um, independently and then going and thumbnailing the entire thing and then mm. proofreading over that, taking away and adding pages for the pacing and uh, just adjusting everything and then scanning it in and doing it digitally. That's normally how the process goes for me. I mean, sometimes, like, because this is so long, there were some edits that had to be done to the digital version, but typically it, it's all done on paper and then turned digital. So I, I do the writing on paper and then the art on the computer, if that makes sense. Mm. Yeah. So the 
final art once you had the thumbnail did you do that entirely digitally or is it a mixture of kind of analog uh, and digital no all, all the pictures you're seeing all the book is done completely digitally okay yeah on my computer i do it with a, a tablet or a mouse uh, or... no how i did project immortality is my computer has a touch screen mm-hmm. so i used a touch screen computer and then incorporating bits of just using the mouse for like more angular lines just mapping them out like for the panels and some of the coloring as well so when you're working on a touch screen do you do the whole page in one go or do you zoom into a panel draw that and then zoom out and do the next panel well this is kind of different from my normal graphic novels just because it's so long so i did the whole thing all of the line art then all of the color then all of everything else and I think that entire process took about a year just every evening doing that and um and then I think about like six more months of redrafting it and editing it before it got published that's still quite intensive I mean that's about a page a day if you give yourself weekends off you know I didn't give myself weekend. <laughs> but, I mean, if you think of, say, you know, the most prolific uh, creators out there, someone like Charlie Adlard, who does an issue of Walking Dead a month, sometimes two a month, he does 22 pages a month. So you're doing at the kind of same rate as people who are the fastest in the business. You're I mean, were like, you setting yourself uh, that kind of target? I think that's just one of the reasons why I was able to get this graphic novel done so young is just because of how, like, driven I am. Mm. I, I feel like my main skill isn't particularly the art or the writing. It, it's just the ability to be able to do the same thing every evening for a year and a bit <laughs> that I think most people my age can't do. <laughs> I think that's the real skill. But, yeah. I like the, the art style is really interesting. It kind of reminds me as much of uh, the kind of modern cartoons that you get on sort of Adult Swim or Nickelodeon as it does traditional comic art. I mean, what would you say your influences were? Uh, with my art, I, I really just like really distinct angular shapes that don't really go into detail, but rather just uh, like show the rule of appeal in mm. as raw a form as you can get. I've actually, because when you're my age, your art improves constantly. And because these pictures are about a year old, I've improved a lot from drawing these ones. And so it's kind of weird to see them just up there. But I, I, I'm doing my new graphic novel now, <laughs> which... Uh, yeah, is in the works, but um, I feel like I draw a heavy influence from like heavy cartoons type mm. of stuff. Lots of the comics I read are just random indie comics, like plenty of them like self-published. I, I just I like seeing a scope of art, but I've always been drawn to just more more cartoony. Yeah, and I, I think cartoons are really important because even though they just show like a really basic symbol of something, that's that's not to say they're worse, it's just different. And mm. yeah, I, I think heavy use of just very, very simplistic imagery is really underused because mm. it's, it's more interesting in the way that it works, if that makes sense. Like yeah. you, you can show so many detail or you can try and simplify things to explain a lot using, you know, really simplistic shapes. And that's what I try and explore a lot on my own. Mm. <laughs> well, I think, I mean, there's been research into, you know, people reading emotions into stick figures and simply drawn cartoons and in a way if something allows for a lot of input from the reader then you can project far more emotions onto it so i think if you're doing something this dark when a character wakes up with a a knife in their chest i don't think this would work if it wasn't so like just 
the image of cartoons. I try and use as little lines as possible, like mm. an unnecessary line. I don't like to have it there. <laughs> I, I like to see how simple I can get with it. And definitely that's that's just the type of thing that I really like exploring. Like, mm. why why do I feel this way when I see something that's just a, a circle with legs? Like, why why is that communicated? And that's kind of what I'm trying to express here with this book. But, mm. yeah. And, I mean, another of the things that you do that I like is that something you don't see that much in comics, but you see quite often in film, is where you just have a shot of an object. So there might be four panels on a page of, like, a, a syringe, a discarded knife... And it's telling the story through, uh, to use a really poncy term, through the mise-en-scene. The objects within a scene tell the story as much as the uh, kind of narration, the dialogue. It's, you know, kind of creating atmosphere and plot through the elements of uh, the pictorial, the visual elements of what you see within the frame. Because I find... Uh, this is the first page of the book up here. Mm. And I, I find um, most of my <laughs> first pages are just establishing shots that kind mm. of let the reader draw their own conclusion as to what might be going on and then go on to explain it to them. And I, I actually remember back when I first drew this page, I sent it to one of my art friends who told me that he didn't understand what was going on. He was like, oh, there's huh. a picture, sorry, a book. I don't understand what the, the message is here. And I remember just trying finding it really hard to explain what it meant to just have establishing shots. Like, mm. I couldn't put it into words, but... I, I hope that it, it translates. I, I feel as though it does. Yeah, definitely. When we were talking before uh, I started recording, you were saying that the print version, which has come out as a sort of traditional paperback, or if you're a manga fan, uh, a tackle band size book, which has become quite traditional in manga, but isn't that traditional in comics. Was this how you were envisioning the print version? Was it a surprise uh, that your art was shrunk to that size? No, no, this wasn't how I was envisioning the print. I've, I've come to really like it, though, and I have found, just because the size is unique to mm. itself, I find lots of people bring up how, how small it is and how much... Uh, experiences within the pages considering it's just a tiny little thing but I was imagining it bigger in my head but just because it's so long it, it had to be printed like this is the only way for it to really make money is for it to be this size but I, I think it works well it's it's like a manga it's mm. like yeah so when you were doing the art digitally, it was with an eye to perhaps this could be printed, say, traditional comic book size or larger. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, w I was think I, I didn't have too much of an idea of what I wanted it to look like, but I did want it to be bigger than how it is. Hmm. Especially, actually, with the, the simple art style, I think having it small works in its favour quite a lot, because, again, that follows simplifying things to the extreme, which it does, being so small. So I think... Yeah, like I, I would never have imagined it like this, but my publisher thought this was a good idea, and yeah. I think it's worked out well. So, well, I mean, you know, it's funny. There's this myth that superhero comics are read by kids, but actually they're made by middle-aged men and they're read by middle-aged men. Yeah. But a lot of manga this size is read by teens. So I wonder, actually, accidentally rather than by design, you may end up selling it to more of your own age group than older people purely because of the format that it's been released in. Is that something that kind of appeals to you or do you not mind yeah, about your readership? You could say that. I think I definitely did write it for people my own age because it, it draws influence from the comics that I would read, just random indie comics that I mm. find. Uh, I'm not too sure because I wasn't thinking about a target audience when I made it, but I, I don't know. It says 12 and up on the back, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hmm. 
how did you find your publisher, Marcosia? Marcosia. Well, the funny thing is, when, when I, I finished um, writing Project Immortality and I made my cover letter and sent it out as emails, I sent it to three publishers, Marcosia being one of them. And what was unusual about them was they got back to me the next day asking to um, pick it up, which I was really uh, taken aback by. I remember when I got the email, I assumed that it was a rejection email and didn't pay much mind until I opened it and realised that it wasn't a rejection email. And I, I kind of got a bit um, like freaked out when I saw that. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's actually... Um, I don't know, because those two other people... Mm. Like, Marcosia just took it before they even had a chance, so I don't know. I, I assumed it would take a, a few months to get it picked up, but they got back to me the next day, which I, I think is good. I guess it boosted my confidence a bit, yeah. but I didn't actually get around to telling my parents <laughs> that I got picked up until a few weeks later, because I, <laughs> I didn't know how to say it. Um, well, I mean, you know, if you want to be cynical, it could be as much that Marcosia thought this could really appeal to a teen demographic and maybe we're not publishing enough stuff that does, you know. Maybe, I, I you know. guess it appeals to a teen demographic. I, I wonder if that has something to do with how simple the art style is as mm. well, because I think that's something, as as with the size, I think it stands out, the art style is shaped, basically. Mm. Well, I don't know. Like mm. I said, I've, I've improved from here. There are definitely things I like about mm. it, but mm. there are things that I wouldn't have noticed to change that mm. I do see now, but... Mm. That's, you know... Yeah. I think that's probably just a part about being uh, young, as you improve. Well, and also in the PowerPoint, obviously you've got some um, character designs as well, uh, as well as, you know, finished art. And it's interesting that you mentioned the word shot rather than drawing early, because actually the way that you frame a lot of your drawings does remind me as much of film as does of comics because you use things like drawing from overhead, um, looking down from overhead and so on, which perhaps isn't used as much in comics because it's something that's seen as filmic rather than part of the language as comics. Yeah, well, I think definitely it's, it's hard to see from the outside, but film and comics have quite a lot of differences. Just I'm sure that's in regard to how people perceive them because when you have comics, you don't have sound, you don't have movement so that all has to be inferred so normally comics will have like heavy like here at the bottom that's heavy movement that's mm. a scene where things are happening but then, then, then at the top it's just establishing shots which I'm sure are more indicative to um, film mm. Do you see kind of trends in your work that perhaps aren't set out um, kind of consciously but start to develop for example when you know I read the book <laughs> but I see quite often you like to group four panels together to tell a little bit of a story that might be separated out from the rest of the page. Yeah, yeah, I think all my pages hold their own small movement, if that makes sense. Like, it's not a motion over the whole comic. Each page is its own thing that happens. Mm. One trend I also notice is I always like to have one, the top of the page will be one set of panels doing something, and then the bottom will just be like a spread out with a picture. You can see if you look at the book... Mm. The top here is a lot whiter than the <laughs> bottom here because nice. I always do the splashes. <laughs> One thing I'm also happy about the printing is the fact that you can see mm. on the edge because I really like that about comics, mm. especially because there's a bit where the whole thing goes dark and you can see it. Well, and I suppose, you know, having to take this to a publisher who are known for like bringing out, you know, comics that end up in comic shops and bookshops, 
Did you have to start thinking about things like um, page bleed for the first time? Yeah, I really hated it. Because I didn't even really know that was... Like, I knew it was a thing, because Marcosi has a thing about it on their website. But I didn't really take it into consideration. I think that's partly because I didn't think it would get published. And, yeah, but now... I, I had to move all the little speech bubbles and everything. I was really kind of worried about it, that it would be all cut when I got it, but it's not. Mm. I did it right. <laughs> and, but I do feel as though some of the pages looked better before everything had to be adjusted. But and I guess that's, that's better than them all being sliced up. So. Yeah. If you hadn't found a publisher, we, would you have put it online? Would you have kickstarted it to oh, get yeah. it in print? I don't really like using the internet for my art. I much prefer doing print things. I, I don't know what it is about print. I just, like, I, I did it for print. I didn't mm. do it for... Well, I think the thing is, if, if you've made something of publishable quality, with enough trial and error, you, you get it published. Mm. It's just by luck that I got it so early, taken by Marcosia. But, um, yeah, I, I should start using Twitter more, but I don't. Mm. No, I mean, I, I, I'm with you. I prefer reading comics in print. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think it's, most of the web comics I've read are ones that have been collected as print versions, yeah. which seems slightly perverse. It's just something but... about, um, like, holding it as mm, well. I agree. Especially just, like, running your thumb across it and you, you, the, the entire story's there. That I feel a lot, a lot is taken away from comics when they're digital, I, I feel. But, yeah, lots of Project Immortality has actually been um, sold digitally, though. On drive through Comics. Which is all, uh, okay, yeah. sure. It sold a lot on drive through comics. It was the number one bestseller for like three days or so a few months ago, which was like pretty crazy. I don't know. Okay. But, hmm. Yeah, so plenty of it is digital, but I prefer the print version. Nice. Yeah. Does anyone in the audience have any questions for Coke? Is drive through comics an American site, do you know? Uh, I think you can go on it anywhere. I think, I don't know, I don't use it, but it's a digital comics platform i mean it's funny it does kind of mean people could shop around in a way because on kindle i noticed it's about <coughs> 650 on drive through it's four dollars but i you know i don't know enough about each platform to say whether one has more of an advantage than another i don't really know either like i i know i know how to draw a comic <laughs> i don't really know much else um, <laughs> well if if you know if the publisher gets you more outlets then that's a good thing yeah I guess. Well, I don't know. I'm looking forward to doing my my next book, which is in, you know, it's on its way. But I have lots of ideas, so it's kind of overwhelming. But I think I'm doing okay. <coughs> How does your... Um, so you, you drew this when you were 15, was that... Was that- uh, 15, 14. I signed my contract yeah, with Marcosia. I signed <laughs> it. How does that work when you're... Me, age? as an underage person, has to have anything countersigned by my dad who's right there (laughs) so I signed it when I was 15 he signed it underneath just giving me permission I suppose I don't know it's 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 a really weird situation being in getting a publishing deal but you'll you have to have permission from a parent to be able to do like it is strange (laughs) because I forget that I'm not like 30 a lot of the time (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) like it's really weird me sitting here with you all listening and you're all drinking alcohol I'm not allowed to drink alcohol but (laughs) yeah (laughs) Um, so how do you know if you've got a good 
contract or not? Did you have that checked by someone in the business? Uh, yeah, I, I know a few people who have books out. And not, that, <clears throat> not that I'd assume they'd be out to rip you off. But no, you know, no, no. You know. I'm not sure to what extent I'm really allowed to talk about Mark Cozy's contract. I have, <laughs> <laughs> I have people who have published books who looked at it and said, yeah, this is fine. Okay. This is as far as it went, yeah. So, Coco, with the, the things that you've learnt about publishing your, your first graphic novel, so you talked about the page bleeds and you talked about the format and, and how you had to change some of the things and how you're not that happy, uh, or not as happy as you were with the original pieces of work, how are you approaching the second um, piece of work? Are well, you building a compromise? Or are you... mm-hmm. <laughs> it is... I bear it in mind now, obviously, more so than I did, but uh, it is hard because I really like having speech bubbles near the end, like in the corners, because I like bulking them up near the end. But I, I do have to bear it in mind more now than I would like to, which I don't know, it feels like it kind of ruins it to some extent, but yeah, it's how it goes. I, I'd rather it's printed than not, so. I mean, I guess when pi- when people buy boards that are designed for drawing comics on, they do have the kind of bleed on them so maybe when you're working digitally you could put kind of thin grey lines a centimetre in from the edges just kind of to bear it in mind I think to some extent I can just kind of infer where <laughs> like kind of keep it more printers so, love that yeah keep it in the middle kind of but yeah um, okay so what's next what are you working on at the moment I'm working on a, a bunch of short stories that I'm going to compile into a book um of short stories. I, I've, I've made four, completed four, and currently I'm in the middle of the fifth one. And with these short stories, each of them individually, I'm just kind of working on a different micro skill to try and adapt myself to different forms, like challenge myself with each of them, if that makes sense. But I, I think they work well together, the short stories in like a universe. They're kind of of a similar vein to this, like monster, funny cartoon book. So, yeah. What's a micro skill? Uh, just like a small thing that I, not so like I don't know a macro skill would be comics as a whole. A micro skill would be the individual things that make it up, like uh, working on backgrounds or single illustrations, dialogue and stuff like that. So, with so you'll choose them, one of those for each story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This one I'm going to well, really not on with that. such a direct focus, but kind of like this is what I'm practicing here, and then working on it. And obviously that will expand into different skills as I, I progress through the comic, but. I am really working to like better my writing and my art because I feel like um, it's become more real now, now that I have my, <laughs> my book. Um, so, yeah. Do you have uh, a peer group who you, peer share, who you share your work from? Uh, not really. Uh, it's just kind of me. I don't know. Most of my, uh, the people I know know that I have a comic. Plenty of them draw pictures, but not all of them have published comics. None of them have published comics. Um, actually, I, it's um, sometimes, multiple times since I've published my graphic novel, I'll be sitting somewhere in my peer group reading a, just a comic, any comic, and at least one person will assume that I'm reading my own book. And I don't know, I don't know why. I already know what happens in it. I don't want to read it again. Yeah, but that's happened, like... I've, I don't understand why someone would assume that. But, yeah, my peer group doesn't really understand. Okay. So you're not p- part of a kind of comics community? Mm. This counts, yeah. right? Yeah. But, yeah. Well, welcome. I don't know if you're my peers. 
Well, we're all about three times your age, but apart yeah. from that. <laughs> well, I have plenty of friends who draw, and we draw together. Um, mm. Yeah. But I don't know. It, it's quite scary having a graphic novel published. I didn't think I'd, I'd be, like, as, oh, man, <laughs> is it actually a real book? Yeah. <laughs> so you look back at it, and you've said you've analysed and looked at bits of it. What's the biggest lessons you've learned from doing that long project? A really... I don't know, just maybe a work ethic, just building up enough stamina to be able to do this for as long as I did, and now I'm going on to longer... I have done longer projects. My longest project was about uh, three and a half years. It was writing a, a, a like long narrative story in 30 parts. This was like when I was 12 to 14, um... But yeah, it's too long for me to do on my own, so it's just in the bank to see what happens to it. But I still like that story. Um, so yeah, building up like enough momentum to be able to work on something for as long as I did is definitely something I've learned from this book. And also just how the publishing industry works. Knowing stuff about that at my age, I think, is very good. So I, I know the difference between an agent submission and an unsolicited submission now. So I know to get an agent <laughs> next. Yeah. <laughs> Anyone else? Yeah, just I, I really like the idea of a single character separated between mind and body, mm-hmm. uh, as you said at the start. So do you want to say a little bit more about that? Because that's such a fascinating uh, idea. Well... Mind and body is like a, a philosophical thing that I think has existed for a very, very long time. And then the, the cartoonish depiction of ghosts and zombies is quite a contemporary, silly idea. And then combining those two things creates a dynamic between um, uh, stupid and not stupid. And I just feel as though that, that works really well. I don't know. Uh, I'm realising it in my head now. I think this is a good idea. Um, Mm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it, it's um, I find it hard putting it into words because I wrote it, so mm. I don't really know how to review it properly. <laughs> but I, I I feel as though um, it it shows multiple angles of a story. Like you have the the physical angle of a story with the zombie, and then the the more emotional angle with the ghost, and then you, you have funny bits where, like, the ghost is trying to get the zombie to do something, because he can't do it, because he's not physical, so he can't touch things, and then you have, um, so the, the idea of having to solve a crime from the mind being separate from the body, so if the mind's like, oh, do this, and the body's like, no, I don't want to, it's, <laughs> yeah, so that that's basically the whole, um, like, tension in the story is the the aspect between mind and body and not getting your body to communicate with your brain properly and both ways so uh yeah nice coco kirkland thank you very much coco kirkland's graphic novel is available now from all good online bookshops, and you can read the ebook version by going to drivethroughcomics.com, that's drive, T H R U, comics.com, and searching for Project Immortality. As mentioned earlier, my QA with Coco was recorded at Cartoon County, a previously monthly event where comic creators from across Sussex would meet in a pub in Hove to discuss their work. 
This event, like many others, has obviously been curtailed by the various lockdowns this year, but they hope to return in 2021 with new get-togethers. For more info about Cartoon County, please go to cartooncounty.com. In the second half of today's show, you'll hear a pair of interviews recorded at last year's Copenhagen Comics Festival. Later, legendary manga creator Toshio Meda will be talking about his grotesque erotic comics such as Orosoki Doji, Legend of the Overfiend. However, to start off with, I'm talking to John Ken Mortensen about his collection of nightmarish sketches on post-it notes which were collected in the UK as Sticky Monsters. Your work is actually quite well known in Britain because of a British edition of your Monsters on Post-it Notes collection. Yes. Um, But seeing your stall here at this comics festival, obviously you've got loads of other comics that have been published in uh, Denmark. Um, By trade, you're an animator. But um, how long have you been doing comics for now? I have been doing... I quit my job back in 2011. Ah, okay. Uh, And then... The first book I did was a Sticky Monster book. Mm. But, yeah, since then I've been doing... Uh, in Denmark I've been... I've written two novels, YA wow. novels, okay. and um, uh, three picture books for kids. Mm. Um, and I had a comic strip in the newspaper, like a, a weekly comic strip. So, And I also did... A t- I, I come from a background of doing TV shows for mm. kids. Mm. And I did, uh, uh, after I quit my job, I've done one television show. Okay. Um, so I do a lot of stuff that uh, that Britain never gets to see. I know. <laughs> I guess, you know, if you do a book that's entirely silent, it's much easier to translate. <laughs> yes, that's true, yeah. <laughs> but, it, you know, it's interesting seeing the range of comics that you have on sale. In particular, there's an enormous print that you've got um, behind you on the wall, which is some kind of amazing laboratory stroke um, crypt that has all sorts of monsters in jars and hanging from cages. Obviously, at a festival like this, you have a wide range of merchandise that people might buy from comics to prints to posters. Do you find that it's different kind of people buying different kind of expressions of your work? Yes, very much. There's uh, uh, a huge and a weird difference of people buying because I mean, I also have I sell my originals uh, mm. uh, um, and, and I sell t- uh, as art, and uh, the price is uh, is is high. I, I sell to a whole different crowd of people. I sell to the uh, art collectors mm. and and and, okay. and, and uh, more wealthy people. <laughs> and then I have this whole trade where I sell uh, my books and and everything. Yeah, a wide variety of people and and also age. Mm. Wise, it's okay. from uh, you know all the way down to six wow. six year olds who find uh, something amazing in in, in posted monsters or the mm. sticky monsters as yeah. as you know it in in Britain. Yeah, it's called posted monsters in Denmark, but it's actually not allowed. But it's out oh, of really? print, so uh, <laughs> I won't tell anyone. <laughs> as your most famous work, how did that come about? Was it just idly doodling on? St- uh, post-it notes and then thinking actually I've got enough here for a collection or was there something more kind of curatorial than that in it, creating it? It was uh, a lot of things that came together. I mean I was I was in a job, an extremely stressful job doing TV 
doing kids shows and I was writing and directing myself but having a boss okay. and that's like the worst combo ever. Oh, no. especially a creative boss yeah. so uh, I was work wise stressed out of my wits and at the same time I had a set of twins mm. so it was I just started finding these small holes in the day to put something in that kind of meant something to me. Mm. <laughs> Not that my twins didn't mean anything to me or my work. I mean, my work was extremely stressful and mm. extremely stupid, but most TV work is. Um, but I just started, it was, it was actually just, I mean, also because I have a background in animation, there's so mm. much, there's a way to do it. Mm. And there's so much sketching and there's so much, you use the blue pen to sketch and mm. then you do this and this and you construct and uh, and everything. And also, there were so many projects in the TV world where, you know, I had an idea mm. and then you have one idea that is great mm. and then it takes three years to kill it. Oh dear. <laughs> you know, because yeah, then, yeah. then this good idea, then it's like, okay, this is, this, you know, this meeting between these two, this monster and this little person. Mm. How can that... And, and then you start figuring out a story and then the investors kill the story and... Mm. And everything, and then there's the creative director, stupid dog that he wants in the show as well, and everything. And then three years down the line, mm. the, the the idea is just not there anymore. Mm. So it's just have getting these ideas and not needing to to get the beginning, middle, and end in it. Just yeah. having this like. Uh, also, I mean, I remember when I was a kid going to the VHS store. Mm. Or the, the, the place where you rent the VHS, like the Blockbuster. Mm. Uh, we didn't have Blockbuster back then, but we had the equivalent. Sure. And just looking at, at the cassettes. Mm. And back then we had all the Roger Corman films. Mm. And the, the, the cover was always way better than the actual movie. Yeah. But I didn't get to see the movies back then because I wasn't old enough to, mm. to see them. So I just saw these amazing stories. Because I saw all these beautiful pictures of these amazing things happening. Mm. And then when I got old enough, I saw the movies. I was like, this is crap. <laughs> so, so, so I wanted to also create something that, that could just you know, bloom in other people's minds without having to disappoint them or killing off their favorite characters mm. or anything. Mm. So that's yeah, some of the backgrounds behind okay. uh, Sticky Monsters. Nice. Well, speaking of VHS covers, that is another print that you're selling. Mm. is a collection of fake VHS covers created for you. Yes, as a homage to those and also for films that you'd like to see that don't exist? Yes, exactly. <laughs> that is just, you know, me having... Uh, I mean, we actually created... Uh, the, the gallery I was at, we created it. We, we made it look like a early 90s, beat-down, dirty VHS. Awesome yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, so, so it was... Uh, uh, um, yeah, we made everything look crappy and put, like, these posters everywhere and... Uh, and darkened the whole room and, mm. and, and made it look exactly like you would go into like this 90s uh, video store and find mm. these uh, Italian erotic horror movies and, mm. and all that kind of wall-to-wall crap, but beautiful covers. <laughs> <laughs> so your work is a mixture of single images, of a collection of images in a book, and there's an anthology you're selling, which is traditional sequential art with speech balloons uh, and panels. Those are all kind of related forms of expression, but they're also quite different. Is there any flat form that you prefer to work in, or does it just depend on the idea that you want to realize on paper? It depends on the idea. 
Okay. I mean, that's because I have so many. Uh, I have so many different medias I use. I mean, from uh, everything from television, comics, mm. uh, fine art, and literature. Uh, mm. uh, and so, so it depends on the idea. There's always, and I try to find the the openings mm. to where, like, a production company will ask for something, and I will open the shelf and look for the ideas in there for 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 that kind of particular project. But I mean. And it, the diff, the medias are so extremely different. Mm. But I like also because I think I might have some kind of uh, diagnosis of... I mean, I've been to drinks all my life, so, so okay. I, I, I definitely have something. And, and, and uh, But I think I use it wisely to uh, jump around and get tired of doing stuff. I mean, mm. then I love... When I'm doing a comic book, I love doing a comic book. But, but then when I'm done with it, and I want to do something completely different. Mm. But then again, it's always the same thing. This, it's always the same thing I want to say. Mm. And it's always, you know, it, it, you can see it's me. You can see the, the dark yes. uh, uh, side and, and, and that kind of stuff. So, so I uh, spread out media-wise, but it's still, the, it's still the exactly same thing I want to see. And sometimes I also bang my, my, my head for doing the same story again. But people don't notice because it's a completely different media, so yeah. that's that's good. <laughs> I'm sure dozens of people must have said this to you before, but um, looking at your, your work, I can see a real tradition of American kind of gothic storytelling, thinking of people like Edmund Gorey, Charles Adams, Tim Burton in more recent years. Presumably those kind of people were an influence on you when you were kind of like forming your identity as an artist. Yes, uh, mostly... Edward Gorey, he mm. kind of also, be, I mean, like coming back to the sticky notes, uh, because I was, remember being at school, the animation school, and being like, oh, I can't draw perspective, and I don't, I can't do colors, and I, I, I can't do this toonie stuff, I mean, and mm. and I can't do, uh, um, you know, life drawing, I don't have my anatomy, so so I can't, I couldn't get my ideas out, because mm. I, I, I was held back by not being able to do perspective, not knowing my anatomy mm. and not doing colors and, and everything and also rendering everything I did, like mm. wanting to, to draw the grass. Yes. It's like, no, you can't draw grass. That is, <laughs> you can't do that. It's like, but I do it as fast as with the people who don't draw it. So why can't I do it? It's because we, because we have agreed that, no, you don't do that. So, mm. But then I saw Edward Gorey and I was like, I didn't know you were allowed to draw like this. <laughs> and I, was, I think, it, I mean, it's beautiful. He mm. is by far the most inspiring artist I have ever run into. But mm. it was like, when I saw it, I was like, this is, this, but this is how I always wanted to draw. Mm. Because this gets the point across so clearly and so nice. It has mood and readability and everything. It's mm. just completely amazing. And I love him <laughs> so much. It's also some of the other artists you mentioned. I've mm. been people see similarities, but I think what we have, I know what my, me and Tim Burton has in common is is more Edward Gorey than I've mm. been inspired by actually Tim Burton. Yeah. I mean, I like uh, 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 Tim Burton's, especially his early stuff and especially his animated stuff. Mm. But uh, he's never been that much of an inspira inspiration right. in in my uh, later years and in my art. But I think it's because we both saw Edward Gorey at one point and went, oh my God, this is it. This is perfect. This is beautiful. <laughs> <laughs>
You said earlier that you became frustrated working on projects that would take three years from like inception to, you know, death by commission. So a lot of the work that we see by you is pretty short, whether it's a single image or a small collection of images. Would we ever see a long graphic novel from you? You know, a, a longer narrative that enables you to like use all your storytelling techniques. I mean, uh, I've written two novels. Yeah, that uh, 350 pages each. So, so that's wow. like long stories. Yeah. Well, they say beginning, a picture mid- tells a middle, thousand words. And, <laughs> but that's beginning, middle, and end, and, and like in the classic sense. And also, my um, my last TV show was six episodes of uh, 15 minutes each. So. It was, mm. uh, a 90-minute show, so, mm. and then with also beginning, middle, and end. But um, my producer has been trying to sell it to the mm. to other countries, but apparently in Denmark there's just like no limit to what you can show kids. Okay. Whereas in just, I think the only other countries, Holland, they have mm. like, but other than that, it's like especially the US when they see it's like we cannot. Do this for kids? Are you insane? <laughs> because it's like with uh, the TV show I did was the the, the main bad guy was the uh, principal and and mm. and he kills off people and there's ghosts and 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 kids die by the hand of grown up people. And also my first uh, novel was from the, I mean I come from some really dinky islands down mm. uh, south of Denmark. It, I usually you say it's the Texas of Denmark. <laughs> And the idea with the first uh, or, the, or the elevator pitch is like uh, one day uh, all the grown-up people on the island turn into like old-school traditional vampires. Huh. And then uh, these kids have to fight them. Mm. But it's all people that they know it's there. Oh, interesting. I mean, they, took sh- they take shelter in a school mm. and then they have their parents go like, it's me. Your mom, let me in. But they, of course, they have to be yeah. let in because it's completely yes. old school traditional vampires. Nice. So it's kids having to fight their parents. As so, the parents they still have all the senses that they have. They don't. They just don't have the love and empathy for their kids anymore. They just want blood. And 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 that's also been in every country. Like, we can't do this. We will have to uh, uh, sell this as a grown-up book. It's uh. and, so. Uh, um, and now I'm working on a 60-page old-school traditional comic, cool. a retelling of uh, the Faust mm. legend, mm. because I really, really like it. I love it, but it's always been told in a very highbrow fashion, mm. you know, like Christopher mm. Marlowe and uh, Goethe mm. and uh, uh, Thomas Mann. Mm. So it's always like these really, really hardcore intellectual tellings of this really really wonderful story mm. about doing a deal with the devil mm. so this is about a wrestler like a, a wwf like american uh, the fake wrestling okay um who does a deal with the devil to uh, to gain you know so he's the best and he get, gets these 25 years as you do with mm. the devil mm. until he cl- will claim uh, your soul but uh, the first fight he uh, kills his opponent who is one of his friends oh. And then he starts drinking, and then he forgets about everything, and he doesn't use his uh, 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 deal with the devil at all, and doesn't wrestle, and just uh, turns into a, a, a drunk. And then he meets up with the devil again, and then he has to fight demons in hell. <laughs> that sounds great. I look forward to seeing it. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. For more info about John Ken Mortensen's work, please go to his blog, 
johnken.blogspot.com. That's j-o-h-n-k-e-n-n.blogspot.com. And for more up-to-date work, please go to instagram.com stroke John Ken Mortensen. That's John Ken, M-O-R-T-E-N-S-E-N. And John Ken Mortensen's collection, Sticky Monsters, is available from all good bookshops. Coming up next, I'm talking to legendary mangaka Toshido Maeda about his grotesque erotic comics, such as Arotsoki Doji, which have proved controversial both in their original manga version and in the anime adaptation. As we join my discussion with Maeda-san, I've just asked him the question about what titles he read as a manga creator and whether he felt there were any genres missing from the medium. I, I, I like to read a little more mature or, you know, love romance or reality. Mm. And as you know that uh, in Japan, there are so many segmented area of manga, like mm. fish manga, or cooking manga, yes. or even a you know, mother and the daughter, you know, Indo kind of relationship. Mm. They, you know, really, you know, hate each other's gut. <laughs> you know, kind of, you know, just a black humor type of, uh, you know, manga we have. So from the wide, really wide range of uh, manga we have, so you, you can choose uh, as your taste, like, uh, you know, adult erotic manga, if you feel uh, like to read that, right? Yeah. So now in Japan, there are so many digitalized manga for ladies. Oh, okay. Yes. And uh, ladies are kind of shy to <laughs> buy some erotic manga at a bookstore. Mm. Now, so they enjoy, the, you know, digital erotic manga. Mm. Revealing the secret that, uh, you know, the, why they just uh, uh, buy erotic mm-hmm. manga, kind of, we call it the yaoi or, yes. uh, you know, the boys love type of manga because they shouldn't, you know, go to the bu- bookstore. Mm. They just uh, buy it with one click. Yes. And it could be not a secret, as a matter of fact. The ladies uh, are, are reading that and also, you know, doing some, you know, funny business, you know, alone yeah. in, in their room because no one is there and they can enjoy mm. that kind of fantasy, you know, sexual fantasy. That's another purpose mm. of reading digital manga. Mm. That's, a, you know, ugly truth <laughs> about erotic manga in Japan. So presumably then, in a way, life's a lot easier now for both manga creators and manga fans because I guess when you started doing your most popular work in the 1980s, it would only be people who were prepared to go into bookshops to buy it and people who were almost prepared to be seen buying it, that there might have been some stigma. But now because of the internet, it's much easier to reach a much wider audience. Well, there's a negative point about it because piracy. Ah. So many people are stealing as a matter of fact, kind of digital manga or anime mm. from internet, right? Yeah. So, so many manga fans, you know, come to my booth and, uh, you know, they mention that uh, they just uh, saw it, you know, saw, saw my anime, mm. you know, on YouTube. Yeah. And we manga artists got nothing mm. from YouTube. Yeah. So the piracy is really kind of, you know, the, the horrible problem. Mm. about the anime company and the publishers. Yes. 
publishers and anime company get in trouble to have a, a budget. Now, they, their budget is kind of short mm. to create the good anime or, you know, good manga. Mm. So it's, it's a serious problem, mm. yes. When you first started creating manga in the 1980s, did you feel that the work that you were doing was quite different to everything else that was on the shelves? Mm. I mean, historically, we kind of look back at your work as being groundbreaking, but at the time, did you feel that you were doing something new? Actually, you know, that at the time, I was fed up with just doing regular, typical cookie-cutter erotic manga, mm. like a boy meets girl and have sex and the finish. Yeah. Kind of. So, so, you know, the dopey, you know, the, <laughs> the kind of, you know, the dull, dull type of storylines. Mm. And I didn't like that. So I wanted to create something new. Mm. Something new like uh, sci-fi plus, you know, the kind of gutter comic or horror type, mm. of, you know, everything. And uh, mythology, can I say it? You know, the, from uh, the ancient era. Mm. So I just combined them into mm. one manga. Okay. And I created something new. Ah, so no one had done that before? <laughs> I guess so. Wow. Okay. Yeah, but uh, as a matter of fact, you know, to tell you the truth, I'm, I'm, I'm so scared about, you know, the seeing the horror movie. Mm. I hate it. I, huh. I pee in my pants. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, no joke. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because it feels like the combination of horror and erotica is something that we've seen on the screen for years, mm. but something that's relatively new in comics. So even in Japan, were people writing to you in the 1980s and saying, it's fantastic what you're doing combining these genres? Mm. You know, the, at that time, you know, Miyazaki anime was mm. popular, of course. Mm. And uh, uh, it's okay mm. to see them. But uh, probably I thought another way to express the, what the love is. Mm. Or just, uh, you know, the drawing, the ugly scene, mm. you know, makes uh, we are always wondering, is that true love or not? The hatred or something, it's yeah. combined. The human beings are not so clean. No. You know, Sometimes, you know, that they have some boogeyman inside of you, mm. you know, the ugly you, you know, you, you, you don't notice yourself that, uh, you know, whether or not you are real good man or a bad guy. Yes. You know, so I just try to depict the, the serious scene or, you know, confronting the, how can I say, the front line mm. of the battle, you know, mm. scene or when you face the life and death situation, you, you you tend to show real you. So I like to depict such kind of scene. Mm. And uh, you notice who you are. Yes. Yes, that's that what I really wanted to draw. Mm. Before titles like Arutsuki Doji, you were just illustrating work that other people had written. So this was something that you also wrote yourself. When you had that opportunity, did it also mean it allowed you to be more experimental with the page layout? Were you able to create kind of types of art that you weren't able to before when other people were writing the script? So I don't know. You know, that since I was uh, 24, mm. I just began. Uh, I've been drawing or writing the storyline myself. You know, usually, you know, the artists are using another scenario, mm. but I, I didn't like that. 
Yeah. You know, uh, I, I even uh, draw writing the storyline for another manga artist, mm. like uh, ladies' comics or, uh, you know, the uh, comics for kids. I've been writing the storyline. So I, I love to create the scenario yes. myself. Yeah. So it's my best time mm. to, you know, the create the story, mm. storyline. And uh, probably the Urochi Doji was uh, kind of, you know, the, a bit the shocking, ugly yes. storyline, yeah. right? Yeah. And uh, I don't know, the story denied what the love is or uh, what, you know, hatred is. Mm. So the combined, yeah. kind of complicated storyline. Plus the mythology or, uh, you know, the, I don't know, the meaning of life or uh, any, anything I try to put in together. Mm. Because you were writing and drawing your own comics, did you write out the entire script beforehand and then draw it? Or did you do both at the same time as you were going along? Uh, actually, the, ideally, of course, we should have an idea about the ending. But okay. if you just uh, decide uh, what kind of ending line you, you should aim to go, yeah. you know, it, it's, it's going to be dull. <laughs> And because we just uh, try to see the reaction from viewers mm. and which character might be popular, mm. well, you know, no one knows. So, uh, you know, I'm highly adaptive <laughs> about storyline mm. you know, from their reaction. Okay. So I decided that, okay. that's the way I'm doing. So when you're doing a serialized comic, do you then actually see what people are writing into you and saying and then maybe making changes as you go along if something is popular or something isn't popular? Really? Yeah, yes. Wow. If, if okay. some, you know, one particular, you know, the character is popular, mm. I, I just, uh, you know, try to, you know, the make, make, make him or her in the center mm. of the story sometime, you know, yeah. in the particular episode. Or if... One character I, I don't like. Mm. You know, I just, I'm bullying. I'm, <laughs> I'm picking on. Like, like uh, the, some, you know, snobbish lady appear. Mm. I just, uh, you know, the, uh, try to m- make her having a, a hemorrhoid or uh, something. Like, <laughs> like, like uh, you know, they're getting mischief, mm. you know, on her. Obviously, in Japan, I believe there are certain things you can draw and you can't draw in terms of nudity. So... When you're thinking about the structure of the page, about how, say, part of the human anatomy might be obscured by something else, I guess that's kind of a challenge. But at the same time, as a creator, it must be interesting to have that challenge in order to respond to. Yeah, we've been really, you know, trying hard to be evasive about censorship. Mm. As you know, that in Japan, censorship is so strict. Mm. When you... You know, the, see the completely, you know, stone naked man, you know, the, uh, and uh, the naked girl in bed together yeah. Yeah. and they it up like, uh, you know, women on top or anything like that, such kind of position or doggy, doggy <laughs> kind of things, doggy yeah. fashion or anything. It, it's a big no-no. Right. So that's why I invented tentacle scenes. Okay. You know, I, I, I just try to draw them, you know, separately. Mm. Like a one, you know, one meter, mm. or, you know, kind of, you know, separate. But the, you know that the thing we the men's, you know, the equipment can't reach it. Mm. So if it's one meter long, mm. it can reach. Okay. But uh, no human being 
had mm. such things. Mm. Oh, oh, then why the monster? So monster, you know, can habit, you know, anything, mm. and it's not gender. It's you know a, a part of his body. Mm. So, of course, we, we can depict the part of bo- body, right? Mm. And why zebra? Yeah. Because it's monster. Mm. So that's why you know we invented such kind of silly tentacles. <laughs> several, yes. several ones. You know the monsters have. Mm. But actually, you know when you think about it seriously, when you have several things. At the same time, mm. and you know, having scenes with the lady, for example, you know, the seven girls at the same time. When right. you, you, you know, you have a climax, mm. just even one, you know, the things you have, and uh, you feel so tired. Mm-hmm. And uh, if several things did it, you know, at the same time, you faint. Right. You lose yes. your energy. Probably you're gonna die. Yes. <laughs> Instant death. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> Hearing you talk about your work now, obviously you're still very happy to talk about it. And indeed, you have fans who still love it 30 uh, years on. Even as you were making it, did you have any inclination that it was going to be a big hit? Or as it kind of came out and people were excited about it, was that kind of interesting to you as a creator that you'd created a hit without realizing that you were going to? Uh, I, I don't know. You, you, are you talking about the future plan? Or, uh... No, I mean, the th- when you made it in the past, were you surprised that it was a hit and it continues to be so? <laughs> I, I, I don't know, you know, what was going on. You know, okay. I just, uh, you know, that did it to, you know, go around the censorship okay. about my, my manga. And mm. I don't know the future, you know? Sure. Yeah. So, uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. Toshio Maeda's infamous erotic manga saga, Arotsuki Doji, Legend of the Overfiend, is being released this December in four new volumes. You'll be able to order that online from all good bookshops, except if you live in Australia, where unfortunately the genre of hentai manga has recently been banned. For more info about Toshio Maeda's work, please go to his website, arotsukidoji.jp, stroke en. That's U-R-O-T-S-U-K-I-D-O-J-I dot J-P. As mentioned earlier, both my interview with Toshio Maeda and John Ken Mortensen were recorded at last year's Copenhagen Comics Festival. And to find out more about that event, please go to copenhagencomics.dk. With comic shops in the UK unfortunately closing again for the next month-long lockdown, There are various comic book-related Kickstarter campaigns taking place right now, which are well worth investigating. Crowdfunding at the moment is Volume 9 of the ongoing fantasy saga Widdershins. This series of light-hearted fantasy adventure stories set in a magical version of Victorian-era Yorkshire has been praised for its characterisation and writing, and even won a British Fantasy Award for Best Comic, in 2019. To support this graphic novel, with perks including access to PDFs of all previous eight volumes, please go to Kickstarter and search for Widdershins, that's W-I-D-D-E-R-S-H-I-N-S. Poet and broadcaster Jude Cohen Montague 
is kickstarting the second graphic novel, which he's written, drawn, and painted, Breakfast in Shoreditch, a full-colour follow-up to her memoir, Love on the Isle of Dogs. The text for this forthcoming graphic novel will be in English, French, and franglaise, and is an ideal comic book project for anyone learning the language or wants a magical realist look at East London. To pre-order a copy of Jude's graphic novel, please go to Kickstarter and search for Breakfast in Shoreditch. If you're a fan of classic horror, Sussex-based Blue Fox comics have been involved in various adaptations of literature, and their latest project is a two-part graphic novel adaptation of H.P. Lovecraft's The Shadow Over Innsmouth. Volume 1 is crowdfunding now, and includes also an adaptation of the short story The Cats of Ulthar. For more info about this, please go to kickstarter.com and search for The Shadow Over Innsmouth. That's I-N-N-S-M-O-U-T-H. Also undergoing a Kickstarter campaign is a new magazine called Corridor, a horror-featured title combining short fiction, art, comics, and essays together under one roof, with such creators as Karina Bekdo, Ray Fawkes, Malarkey Ward, Kate Sharon, and Alice Phillips. This looks like a terrific new anthology, so if you like the sound of it, please go to kickstarter.com and search for Corridor Magazine. Another intriguing anthology worth kickstarting is the second issue of Multi Heave, a pastiche of heavy metal by creators Robert Wells and Phil Elliott. Multi Heave is an A4 sized comic with colour covers and 24 monochrome interior pages with each creator contributing a 12-page strip each, inspired by classic horror magazines Creepy and Eerie. There are a number of variations of signed copies and PDFs on the Kickstarter, and for fans of Phil Elliott's work, there's also another chance to get hold of print copies of his three sounds strips, which were made in collaboration with Eddie Campbell, The Mammy, Rodney, and the wonders of science. To get a hold of Multiheave, please go to kickstarter.com and search for M-A-L-T-Y-H-E-A-V-E. In the absence of physical get-togethers at comic book conventions and signings, this year's Thought Bubble Festival is going ahead as a digital Comic-Con from the 14th to the 15th of November. Guests taking part in Q&As interviews, masterclasses, live drawing sessions, and more, include the likes of Babs Tarr, Raphael Albuquerque, Sean Phillips, Charlie Adlard, Duncan Fagrido, Chip Zdarsky, James Tinian, and many more. For more info about the various events taking place online as part of this year's Thought Bubble, please go to thoughtbubblefestival.com. Similarly, Ladies Do Comics continues as an online event, with their next get-together taking place on Zoom on November the 16th, with guests Catherine Anyango, illustrator of the graphic novel version of Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad, Carrie Franzman, creator of the graphic novel The House That Groaned, and the newly released gender-swapped fairy tales, and Alexandra Sergurgiu, illustrator of Rebirth, a new comic collaboration inspired by the work of D.H. Lawrence. 
To book tickets via Eventbrite for this event, please follow Ladies Do Comics on Twitter. That's at L-A-Y-D-E-E-Z-D-O Comics. The wider world of horror, including comics, TV shows and film, is represented in this year's Cine Excess Festival, which begins today online, including screenings of brand new horror films that you can watch through a browser, and panel discussions looking at all sorts of horror films, including A Candle for the Devil and Get Out, discussions of Latinx horror, a look at gay representation in Bates Motel, and discussion of comic book imagery via depictions of the Joker in Batman comics and on screen, and the cult reappropriation of Betty Page. Horror premieres include the films Chop Chop, A.V. the Hunt, Gags the Clown, Daytime Nightmare, and many more. For more info about Cine Excess, please go to cine-excess.co.uk, with the first screening taking place right after today's episode of Panel Borders, and continuing until the screening of the 14th film at this year's Cine Excess at lunchtime on Sunday. Panel Borders was recorded, edited, and introduced by Alex Fitch, and is a Panel Borders production. We'll be back on the first Wednesday in December, and all previous episodes can be found on our blog, www.panelborders.wordpress.com, including interviews with the likes of Mariko Tamaki, Chris Reynolds, Nick Susanis, Sarah Gordon, Sean Azapardi, Daryl Cunningham, Egort, Geordie Burnett, Jim Stalin, and many, many more. The next episode of Panel Borders is looking at representations of politics in comics, including guests Brian and Mary Talbot and David Ziggy Green. And until then, as ever, thanks for listening. This program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.